This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is political theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. We are in another highly competitive midterm election cycle, which means we're going to hear a lot about generic ballot polling. But what exactly is generic ballot polling? It's a series of polls that come from the usual suspects, Quinnipiac and YouGov and Political Morning Consult and Fox and NBC News, all all those folks. And it measures whether people would vote for the candidate for the Democratic or Republican parties if the election was held today. It's a fairly handy measure of how people feel about the parties, as well as for political reporters who are eager to document the horse race nature of politics. But it has its drawbacks in predicting what the actual outcomes will be in elections. So we're going to discuss the generic ballot polling with Nathan Gonzalez, our friend, publisher of Inside Elections and Roll Call's elections analyst on this episode of Political Theater. Nathan, welcome back to Political Theater. Well, thank you for having me. I'm just happy to be asked back because that means the last time uh, went okay. So I appreciate the invitation. <laughs> well, you know, again, we're we're all just happy to be here, right? Uh, I mean, the world is in a a, a weird stake uh, uh, place right now. You know, we've got war in Europe, we've got uh, high gas prices, uh, we've got everything, and I'm just glad to be able to talk about politics on a podcast with somebody who knows what they're talking about, and that's you. <laughs> Well, well, we'll see if we can live up to it. We'll, we'll go for it. <laughs> so generic ballot polling, it's one of those things that uh, people in our world, in in, in politics, uh, they, they gravitate toward not as the end-all, be-all of how to track a, a political race, but it does, it does come up quite frequently. Uh, polling firms, they invest in this question. Uh, each question is, is expensive, has a price on it. And they measure this, whether it's, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, some of the usual uh, sort of polling firms, whether it's Morning Consult or whether it's NBC News or most polling firms seem to have some sort of version of it. But let's let's talk about how you view it and its relative value for what you do in in political handicapping. Yeah, well, when it comes to the generic ballot, Jason, I'm conflicted. Um, I think it can be a useful tool to understanding the broader political environment, right? You you know, look at the presidential job rating uh, and look at the the direction of the country. Do people believe the the country's headed in the right direction or off on the wrong track? And look at the generic ballot in terms of to understand the country's mood. And there are political scientists who, uh, like Dr. Alan Abramowitz, uh, he publishes uh, a lot of stuff at Crystal Ball that can give you an indication even of what uh, the what seats, what will happen in the House of Representatives specifically, where depending on where the generic ballot is. Uh, for example, he has a, a chart that he's posted where if the generic ballot is even, then Democrats could lose you know, 15 could lose 15 seats. Or if if Republicans have a five point advantage, Democrats could lose, you know, up to 24 seats and, and has all of these ranges. So it, it can be helpful. Um, the flip side of it is that I think it is limited in its utility because we don't have a generic race for the House right. <laughs> or the generic, a generic race for the Senate. We don't have a national election. This is a district by district battle. 
And when you get into the districts, we don't have generic candidates. You don't have you have uh, members of both parties, incumbents or challengers with flaws, with strengths, with weaknesses. And so you don't have generic races. So I would I would much prefer to look at district level data and say, OK, let's say Republicans uh, are, are set to gain a dozen seats. Which seats, right? Which members aren't coming back or which new lawmakers are coming to Washington? And, and so I, I would prefer to, to get as much district level data as possible rather than focusing on a national generic question. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of those individual races that are, are likely to determine, you know, the, the majority or where, where you're going to be looking, where roll call is going to be uh, focusing a lot of their coverage in a sec. But I, I wanted to just throw out a few numbers uh, to go with this generic ballot polling. Our, our friends over at Real Clear Politics, they do a uh, you know, sort of a poll av- polling average for all the different polls. And again, this is not that scientific because each poll has its own methodology. Each poll has a different way of, of uh, measuring whether some of it's online, some of it's you know primarily through telephones. But again, as you say, it's, it's an indication of where things are at a given moment in time. The current Real Clear Politics average uh, for the generic ballot has Republicans at a 3.3% advantage. And the most recent generic ballot poll, uh, which is from Economist YouGov, uh, has has Democrats up with a, a slight uh, a slight advantage. And almost everything in the last couple months has been Republican advantage. A slight one, but but still one nevertheless. Back in, in 2020, the most recent election, Towards the end, uh, you know, on, on election day, not not the actual re- election results itself, but on the elect on election day itself, the the real clear politics average had Democrats with a six point eight advantage. Democrats lost uh, thirteen House seats uh, and they, and they gained three seats in the Senate in twenty eighteen. Democrats had a 7.3% advantage in the real clear politics average on, on election day, and they lost two Senate seats. So I, I like to bring those up because it, it shows just the kind of the variance that, you know, that, that it, it doesn't match up all that well, just at least in the most recent elections. Um, but let's, let's actually drill down into a couple of those because I feel like the every time there's a there's a positive poll, you know, for for either side, they tend to tout that. Particularly Democrats, uh, there is there's been a little bit of happy talk that Democrats might be able to hold on to the House, at least among Democratic consultants <laughs> and strategists. Is this the, is this them clinging to this latest YouGov poll? You think? <laughs> Yeah, well, first, at this point in the cycle, we can be open-minded, Jason, right? There are, there are lots of things that could happen. There's no reason why we have to completely rule out Democrats maintaining control of the House. At the same time, we should be very uh, uh, aware of the reality that Republicans are in a strong position to win back the House. It's a little bit tougher in the Senate, but Republicans are, are well-positioned. I, I think where we are in the cycle is a is also we're floating in uh, in the unknown a little bit, right? We have some national numbers, we have a little bit of individual district data, but not a lot. Um, I listen to uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to listen to other podcasts, Jason, beyond political theater. Uh, as as long as you vet them through me, that's fine. You know, that's just, good. Well, we'll, we'll do a check in. You know, well, the, the paperwork <laughs> the paperwork is in on this one. I listen to the Down Ballot podcast uh, produced by Daily Coast, which is a uh, you know they are um, on the left, but uh, they actually provide some pretty good analysis. Right. Uh, and, that, and their data is just great. I mean, yeah. the, the, what they have is, is their, awesome. So. Their district level uh, data is cited wi- uh, widely, 
they had Ali Lapon, who is the founder of House Majority Pack, uh, the go-to Democratic outside group for House races. And she talked about how they're not going to do uh, kind of their exhaustive polling in individual districts until closer to the time when they have to make spending decisions. Where are they going to put ads? And it's it's too early in most races to do that. So what, I, what I'm trying to say is, th- is that they are not alone, that the, the party committees and uh, the outside groups and even some of the candidates are holding off a little bit on their district level polling. So we're left with studying national numbers, looking at past presidential results and trying to give our best estimate on which districts are going to be in play. So in the absence of specific uh, district level data, then uh, we're, we're left kind of grasping for nuggets. And I think that that's where uh, Democrats in this case are, are trying to find what is the, the best data available to make their case to, to themselves and to donors. I'm reminded by uh, you know my former boss and, and colleague, Stu Rothenberg, and columnist for Roll Call, yes. uh, who, say, who in cycles at the committee, at the party committees, when cycles are going poorly, you, you still have to believe that that you can do this, right? That you can pull this off or else what's the, what's the point? And so I try to give a little grace and forgiveness to the parties who have their, their kind of backed into a corner in any particular cycle. Right. And, and as the last time uh, we had you on the podcast uh, back, back in March, um, we went over how you know, some of these historic trends that unified control of, of Congress and the White House is a fairly rare thing in politics. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen that often. We're in one of those periods now. History shows that it just doesn't last that long. You know, uh, Donald Trump had two years. You know, Barack Obama had two years. It's sort of an anomaly to see, you know, anything but like the party that's in control would lose some steam or lose seats or even lose majorities in one chamber or the other. And and when you and Jason, when we're talking about uh, kind of anomalies in in this case, I'm thinking that there there might be individual districts where Democrats are able to to buck the trend, right? Maybe a a, a particularly strong Democratic incumbent. Or, or Republicans find a way to, to screw up a race and, and it doesn't go with the trend. But I think that those will be the anomalies or the aberrations rather than uh, you know, the overall trend of the cycle that we're seeing right now. Right, right, and yeah, I, I like to point to Texas. You know what what happened in Texas with redistricting this cycle? As in general, uh, the Republicans who control um, state government did not go as aggressively as they could have to uh, gerrymander Democrats out of existence. This was not an aggressive redistricting cycle for, on behalf of Republicans in Texas. They opted more for the incumbent protection, you know, approach to redistricting, but that they still have an advantage. They still have a very baked in advantage in Texas. And again, when you're talking about a difference of five seats in the House, you just you don't need much, right? You know, uh, especially in, in a place like Texas that leans Republican uh, and is is either is is strongly Republican in mer- many areas and lean Republican in other areas. That doesn't say Democrats can't do well, you know, in individual districts, but the advantage goes to sort of them. And it just seems like there are more of those hold serve areas, uh, if you will, for Republicans right now than there are for Democrats. Yeah, Georgia is another good example. And these are places where Republicans could still pick up seats this cycle. But what when it's going to matter is probably later in the cycle when we inevitably will have a a cycle that is going to go well for Democrats and it's going to be poor for Republicans, but those districts will be harder for Democrats to get because Republicans chose to shore up seats that they already they already control. 
Right. And there were some decisions, you know, de- Democrats made some decisions that sort of minimized their uh, ability to take advantage, you know, of, of the situation. I mean, in, in Georgia, as you mentioned, uh, Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux are running against each other uh, in a primary. So one of them is not coming back <laughs> to, to Congress. Uh, in Illinois, you've got uh, both Parties have member on member profile or primaries, uh, you know, and with Republicans and Democrats. But it's it, again, all you have to see if you look look at historic trends and then you look at sort of situations like that. There aren't as many spots for Democrats to shore up their their losses, if you will. And let, let's talk a little bit about some of the historic before we get into this cycle with you know a little bit more detail. I just want to talk a little bit about 2018 and 2020 uh, because we did see things that were interesting, right? I mean, Democrats had the advantage in the generic uh, ballot polling in both of those cycles. Uh, the, those numbers that I mentioned earlier, you know, they had this uh, 7.3 point advantage on election day in in 2018. They went on to to win 41 House seats. Uh, you were one of the people predicting that the Democrats were going to have a pretty good night, uh, more likely than not. Democrats won so many seats that we didn't expect that I remember in the at least in our newsroom we didn't have biographies sketched out for some of the Democrats who won. <laughs> like we didn't know who Kendra Horn was in Oklahoma uh, because we did not expect that to happen. And and this is a kind of a classic wave election, right? I mean like there are just those are where things just go all in one direction for one party. Right. And and those surprises usually happen because both uh, the party that controls the seat isn't aware of the vulnerability and the party that uh, is doesn't control the seat isn't aware of the opportunity. And so there isn't as much data. I mean, people, you know, our, our listeners have to remember that in any particular competitive race, there are at least six different entities that are polling, right? You have the candidate on each side, you have the party official party committees on each side, and you have outside groups on each side that uh, that can't coordinate with the candidates or the committees. So, uh, and there are sometimes other outside groups or, or media interests that are polling. So there's usually a lot of data, but those surprise races happen when you don't have all of that kind of available data, either publicly or off the record below um, below the the surface. Um, but when when we're talking about 2020 and the the lack of generic the the generic not lining up um, with the results, I, I, first of all, I'm not going to in, in the be house a, be, an, yeah. be an apologist for it since I've already expressed my skepticism of the generic ballot. Uh, but it could also have been that the 2020 polling was a little bit skewed, right? It showed it, it painted a rosier picture for Democrats overall, including. Um, for Biden in the presidential race. Now, Biden obviously ended up winning, but it was a closer race than what many people expected. And I think that that probably filtered down into the generic ballot also being rosier than expected for Democrats and thus Republicans kind of bucking the trend. And I think the the Republican gains in 2020 could limit the Republican gains in 2022 because they already um, they already picked off a dozen seats and some of the low hanging fruit they already got last cycle. And let's talk about the Senate too and how this factors into it, because at the same time that, I mean, and this is what a lot of 
people who are kind of rooting for Democrats will say is that like, but, 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 you know, the, you know, it, we could do the a version of what in 2022 of what happened with Republicans uh, possibly in 2018, which is that again, Democrats won 40 plus seats, but then they lost two Senate seats. Uh, but, but again, this speaks to the nature of, as you said, that we do not have a national election. We have individual uh, elections and where the battleground states were for the Senate, uh, for control of the Senate were, were in places that were not friendly to Democrats. Right. 2018 is a good example of where the Senate class matters. What states are up in a particular cycle, it matters. And most of the, a lot of the competitive seats in 2018 on the Senate side were in Republican leaning states. And if it had been a, a different class, then I think Democrats would have lost Senate seats as well. Now, that's, that is good news for Democrats this cycle in 2022, because this is not a terrible map. Uh, when you look at the, the eight most competitive dis, uh, states with a Senate race, or even the, we'll drill down into the five most <laughs> competitive states in the Senate, Biden won all of those in 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the asterisk to that is that he won those five races by less than a point or less, at least less than two points, and sometimes less than a point. And that is going to be difficult for Democrats to replicate the Biden coalition uh, when we look at races like 2021 uh, in Virginia and New Jersey in those gubernatorial races where the Democratic candidate, whether it was Terry McAuliffe or Governor Phil Murphy, underperformed by 12 points. 12 points. So, and, and things haven't gotten better environmentally for Democrats in, in, since since November. So that shows that the map, there, there's, there's good news for Democrats and there's still some obvious weakness when you compare it with the current uh, political environment. And again, you know, going to back to 2020, you know, where we saw Democrats had a, a, a rough night in the House, um, you know, the, the several people who, who were expecting gains uh, by the, for the Democrats, they they lost seats, they held on to their majority and, the, and, you know, this very slim majority that they have now, but then they picked up the, the Senate majority. And I, you know, I was I was looking at the states that basically provided the Democrats with their majority, and it was they were all states that were either swing states uh, that Biden won, as you mentioned, like Georgia and Arizona, or they were states where Democrats just have a, an inherent advantage. Colorado, you know, Cory Gardner, you know, Republican incumbent, you know, he won in in twenty fourteen in a very good Republican year, a very well liked senator, a, you know, like a, a you know a fairly popular senator at home, and he just couldn't overcome. Um, you know, what was a continuously trending blue state in Colorado and lost to John Hickenlooper, the former governor. Uh, Mark Kelly, who's kind of a unique candidate, I've got to say. I mean, like, I'm not saying that just because uh, it's Arizona, my home state. I mean, Mark Kelly is an astronaut, for God's sake. You know, like, <laughs> there just aren't that many of them. Uh, he's also married uh, to, to Gabby Giffords, who, you know, was, you know, her career was cut short uh, by gun and a shooting. Uh, and they, they went on to uh, form a, a gun control group and and got access to a lot of donors through their efforts on that uh, and got to know a lot of people outside of the normal political process. And he just raises money hand over fist. I mean, it's just a, I mean, he is a, I would argue he is a unique candidate and he did outperform Biden, albeit slightly in, in Arizona. Yeah. And it's going, it's going to be, I think 2020 was largely 
an, explained by an alignment election that the that the Senate races and even the House races uh, came into alignment with the presidential outcome. Now, again, the presidential outcome was a little closer, and because Trump did better in some individual House districts, that helped carry some House districts. Republicans win some House districts that they weren't otherwise uh, expected to. In uh, the Senate, was a largely alignment as well, right? That the that the gains, uh, particularly those last few that Democrats got to get to them to get to control, were in states that Biden won. But but again, that margin is so narrow, and. Uh, It'll be difficult for Democrats to to hold up that weight, or to hold up under the weight of of now being in control. I mean, that's a fundamental shift from 2020, where it was kind of a referendum on President Trump, to now it's a referendum on Democrats in power, including a Democratic president at a time when the country is facing multiple crises. Right, and the last two Senate you know contests that did cement Democratic control, although in the the smallest margin you can have a 50-50 senate where basically the vice president can, you know determines the major the majority with her tie breaking vote and Kamala Harris i mean trump one was a special election they were both runoffs because in georgia you have to get a, a clear majority 50% plus 1 that didn't happen in either georgia senate seat there was a special election for johnny isaacson seat and there was a the regular seat that was up in uh uh david Perdue's. and they both went to a runoff Trump had spent the last two months <laughs> railing about, you know, fraud and and just, you know, making this all sort of all about him. And then January 6th happened and he went down to Georgia and talked about fraud. And, you know, that that is a unique situation that we haven't really seen any kind of anything to, to sort of suggest what would have happened before. Like we, we, we've never seen anything like that. And both Democrats won. And so that's Given how unique that situation is, it, it's it's almost like you twenty twenty belongs in sort of a class of its own. Yeah, and and we um, there is concern on the Republican side that Trump's uh, focus on the twenty twenty elections will will have a dampening effect on turnout. Now, I think that that concern might be a little bit different than compared to the 2020 and the, those 2021 runoffs, because there are just so many things right now to get Republicans amped up about that even didn't quite exist, at least at the same level in last cycle. Um, but it, it's one good example where Trump uh, and his rhetoric and message about stolen elections is not helpful, particularly when Democrats have when Republicans have the ability to pe- to appeal to independent voters on economic issues or, or other things that independents are concerned about. Right, and and again, we're not trying to, we're not trying to pick on the generic ballot, but I hope that people are coming away from our conversation by saying that, like you know, again, this this measures a particular mood of of a group of people, but when you get when you drill down into the details of a House race or and particularly Senate races. The generic ballot can kind of go out the window, and and you know I'll just- pick on the generic ballot, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I, well, I'll tell you one question that I hate, even that I that I really despise, and uh, is is when pollsters test uh, a named candidate. We'll say Senator Mark Kelly, since we're just talking about it, against a generic Republican. Like that is just that's just not how races play out. It's just not you know. Mark Kelly will not be facing a generic Republican. It will be a, a Republican with strengths, with weaknesses, you know, with name ID, at certain level, you know, with certain level of funding. There's lots of things, but a race is, uh, you know, it's not going to be a generic candidate. So I, if anytime I see a, a ballot or a question with a named 
politician against a generic politician. I just try to erase it from my memory uh, as quickly as possible. Maybe it's a men in black, uh, whatever that thing, that device was <laughs> yeah, that wipes people's memory. Yes. Um, no. And, and I, um, I, I mean, actually one of the races I wanted to mention, like you're, you're, you still, you know, you're, you're waiting to update, you know, some of your Senate race ratings to see who the candidates are. But like at the beginning of the year uh, for, for roll call and for, for inside elections, you, you identified the eight sort of battleground states to varying degrees of competitiveness as Georgia, Raphael, Warnock is running, uh, Arizona, Mark Kelly, those are two special elections, so they're, that's why they're both running again, just two years after they won. New Hampshshire, Maggie Hassan, uh, Nevada, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, Pennsylvania, which is open because Pat Toomey is retiring. Uh, Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson's running for re-election, North Carolina, which is open because Richard Burr is retiring, and Florida, where Marco Rubio uh, is, is running for re-election. And Pennsylvania, to me, this is this could be the race where we see how a candidate matters and and all that that could go against the general wave of what's happening in the in the rest of the country or the rest of the state even uh, you have four very different kind of i would say forerunner i know that more and more people are running uh, on on both sides but you know on the in the democratic side you got John Fetterman the lieutenant governor and Connor Lamb uh, a, a house member from the Pittsburgh area on the Republican side, you had McCormick, who's a you know a hedge fund guy, and he's married to a former Trump White House national security advisor, Dina Powell, a very traditional kind of country club Republican, kind of like in the Pat Toomey mode. And then you've got Dr. Oz, who you've written about before. Former President Trump has has endorsed his buddy, uh, Dr. Oz. Uh, some people are skeptical that this is the right move, that he would be the best candidate. But again, it it matters who the Democrats pick, too. I mean, this is like one of those seats that's just going to be it's going to be an amazing campaign to cover. Yeah, and and none of them are perfect, right? All of those candidates that you mentioned have have some weaknesses. They have strengths as well. Uh, what I keep coming back to is, you know, Biden won Pennsylvania very narrowly, and that's going to be difficult to, I think, replicate. And that gives Republicans a little bit more room for error that that Dr. Oz or or Dave David McCormick can have. They they don't have to, they may not have to be perfect candidates um, because of that the voters are more focused on sending a message to Democrats rather than uh, rather than focused on the individual Republicans. Now that's what and that that could end up saving Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, right? He, his uh, profile um, has changed or or his approval ratings have come down in his first two during his first two terms. And he, but he may be kind of saved by the cycle because in a state that Joe Biden carried very narrowly and Democrats are going to, I think, struggle to, to carry once again. But it, um, so we, yeah, candidate, when we talk about candidate quality and candidate strength, it's not a, a fixed point on a spectrum. I see it as it can, it can move to what type of, what type of candidate you need or how strong a candidate you need depends on whether you have that national win at your back or not. I almost feel like, you know, we could uh, we could just quote Lester on the wire when he says all the pieces are important. I mean, what what you're saying, Nathan, is all the pieces are important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I guess we'll see when we get there. Uh, but it's uh, yeah, these are these are complex organisms. Races are complex organisms uh, that uh, have a lot of moving parts. Well, I am waiting for somebody to uh, provide some sort of visualization of the generic ballot poll. I just have uh, a, a a vision of, of one of my favorite movies, Repo Man, where Emilio Estevez's character is, is stocking groceries, and there's this entire row of generic foods and so forth, and there's even a generic beer. It's just a white 
can with it just says beer. And so I, I'm waiting for somebody to come up with this visualization of just like a poll that says poll or <laughs> congressional ballot. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if Republicans uh, use that scene to say, you know, this is this is Biden's America. This, this is what it this is what it's going to look like uh, if if Democrats maintain their control. Uh, so we'll see. Well, if if any uh, Republican strategist is a, is a fan of Repo Man and wants to talk about that and other Alex Cox movies, I am happy to have them on political theater because it would it would quickly become a, a more film focused uh, podcast. Right at that point, <laughs> I, I think you you've put out the call. Let's see, let's hope people let's hope someone answers. Uh, speaking of answers, thank you for answering my call, uh, Nathan. It's always great to have you uh, on the podcast, uh, and I know that uh, we'll, we will have you back on uh, to discuss this because this, you know, I feel like this midterm election is just getting going, and we've got a long way to go before November. It's going to be exciting. Happy to do it anytime. <laughs> <laughs> 